Good morning to all of you. <laughs> I'm delighted to be with you today. Uh, this has been a long season of uh, discernment and seeking God's plan for the next season of our lives. And I'm grateful that the Lord has brought us thus far, and uh, here we are as a family. And I want to express my gratitude on behalf of our family, my wife Aboli, and our four children uh, for your warmth and love as a church. You know, our time here has been a blessing, and we've had such good interactions with different people here. I want you to know that you have an amazing elder board here at West Park, and I have at most respect for them and for their love for the Lord. It's been a delight to get to know the staff here. You know, they are passionate and they are eager to serve Jesus, and they are a fantastic team. And we also talked to a number of you, the seniors at West Park, the key leaders, and we had a meet and greet yesterday as well. Now, it is obvious that God is doing an incredible work in this place. And today, my wife and I are trusting that the Lord will unfold His will for our lives, what the next assignment is going to look like. And I want to say up front that it will be an honor and privilege, a sacred responsibility to lead a congregation like you. And I'm humbled that you, you would even consider me as a pastoral candidate. Now, in preparation for uh, what the Lord may have in store for the next season of our life, I started reading uh, Eugene Peterson's autobiography called The Pastor. And in this book, uh, Eugene Peterson shares about his uh, pastoral ministry and life. Uh, Eugene was in grade one in elementary school when he won his first convert for Christ. In school, uh, Eugene was uh, bothered by a bully named Garrison Johns, who was a year older. Uh, most afternoons after school, uh, Garrison Johns would catch Eugene and beat him up. When Eugene went to his mother and reported this, uh, she gave him Bible verses to memorize. Bless those who persecute you, and show your other cheek. Uh, the bullying went on for a while until one afternoon, Eugene says something snapped inside of him. So he grabbed Garrison Johns, wrestled him to the ground, and Eugene Peterson says, to my surprise and his, I was stronger than he was. And he goes on to say, I sat on his chest, pinned his arms uh, to the ground with my knees, and he was helpless at my mercy. It was too good to be true. He goes on to say, I hit him in the face with my fists. It felt good. And I hit him again. Uh, blood spurted from his nose. A lovely crimson in the snow. A poetic language. And then he says, my Christian training reasserted itself. And Peterson said to Garrison John, say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. You know, he wouldn't say it, so I hit him again, more blood. And I tried again, say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and he finally said it. So Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. <laughs> so if you bring me to West Park as your pastor, I want to assure you that will not be my approach to evangelism. But I sure would challenge West Park to be a church on mission. I will challenge you to be more externally focused with your life and share 
the love of Jesus with people in your areas of influence. See, that is because we have been entrusted with a message that we cannot keep to ourselves. That's what the Apostle Paul says to the church in Colossae, that they have been entrusted with a mystery that has now been made known. So I've titled my message today, Entrusted with a Secret. And the text that I have is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. If you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the Word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously content with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. You may be seated. When our human heart is grabbed by a compelling vision, it is amazing to see the extent we are willing to go in order to accomplish that objective. Now, you look at sports athletes, scientists, business magnets, and they sacrifice their whole life to accomplish what has captivated their hearts. Now, how much more we as God's people need to sacrifice to fulfill God's purposes for our generation? The Apostle Paul reveals in this section of Scripture the absolute compelling passion of his heart. This one purpose transcended everything else Paul did. It was the reason for his living, why he woke up every morning. Now, he was so enthralled by this compelling vision that this one all-consuming drive changed the trajectory of Paul's life. It caused him to suffer more than anyone else in his time. And if we are gripped by this one thing that Paul was gripped with, if this becomes the driving passion of our heart, then it will change our life's trajectory as well. And what is that one thing? That's the crux of this section of Scripture. It is the mystery or secret that had been hidden for ages and generations, but has now been revealed to God's people. The word mystery appears three times in this short section of Scripture. So what's the mystery of the ages? Here it is in verses 26 and 27. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles 
the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The word mystery in the New Testament denotes something that can only be known through divine revelation. Paul was a Jew. Not just a Jew, he was a Pharisee. And not just a Pharisee, he was an aspiring young leader who had a, a promising future in Judaism. There were few who were more devoted to following the rules and regulations of the law than the Apostle Paul. And Paul knew very well in the Old Covenant that God's presence dwelt in the temple in the Holy of Holies. The temple had a, a big veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the people. Now that was symbolizing that access to God is closed. But Paul had an encounter with the risen Jesus, an experience that opened his eyes to the truth. And Paul's heart was captivated by this mystery of God, the mystery of the ages. Though the intentional use of the word mystery in this letter to Colossians was to get the attention of the Colossian church that was influenced by Gnostic teachings. They were keen on mysteries and secrets, knowledge and esoteric experiences. And the Colossians thought secrets were revealed only to a, a select group of elite people. It was an exclusive club that guarded the secret. But in contrast, Paul says the mystery or secret has been unveiled in Christ, has been made available, not just to a select few, but to all who trust in Jesus. This is an open secret for all people. It's been made universal. And all of the Old Testament pointed to this mystery, that God had personally entrusted this secret to Paul. And he was the guardian of this new revelation. And he lived every day of his life to promote this message. And today, you and I know something that Abraham, the father of our faith, did not know. Moses, Samuel, David, Ruth, Esther, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. All these great men and women of the Old Testament did not know the secret that has been revealed to us now. They lived in the shadows, but we live in full light. So what is the mystery? What is the secret? This is it. God does not live today in temples made with human hands. He lives in the hearts of men and women who love him and worship him. God's plan always has been to restore the effects of the fall by sending his own son to establish the kingdom of God in the hearts of all those who believe in him. So this Jesus that Paul referenced to in the previous section in Colossians, in Colossians 1, 15 to 23, this Jesus who is divine, who is the fullness of God, the one who made the world the one who rules and has absolute dominion and authority, the Jesus who holds all things and in him all things consist, 
the one who is the Lord and head over the church, whose presence even the heavens cannot contain, now lives within all those who trust in him. Now, isn't that an incredible revelation? When somebody places their faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus himself comes to live in their hearts through the Holy Spirit. And that one phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory, encapsulates the entire gospel. Jews, Gentiles, and every single people group are brought together and unified by the indwelling presence of Jesus so we can be one single family of God. Now, Paul is so captivated by this idea of who Jesus is and what he has done, that he lived to proclaim this message for the rest of his life. And I want to share two points from this text that Paul is emphasizing here in our text in Colossians. First of all, God has entrusted us with the secret. God has entrusted us with the secret. We are stewards of this great gospel. Paul says in Colossians 1.25, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Ever since Paul had this encounter with the living Jesus, he knew he had been set apart for this special commission that God had made Paul an overseer of this mystery to tell the world that Jesus is God's plan of salvation for all people. Paul was a minister of this truth. The word minister does not refer to an exalted position or a religious title, but it's a word used to refer to an ordinary servant. One of the ways Paul would minister is by declaring the word of God in its fullness. See, that is a pastoral responsibility. Early in my Christian life, the Lord placed a burning desire in my heart to devote my whole life to serving Him. It became clear God was calling me to the pastoral ministry to pour my life into discipling others, to remind them of the mission God has for them as Christian believers. Here's my personal conviction. A pastor engages in a number of functions. And I'm a relational leader, and I love being with the people, not being distant, but involved in people's lives. But in the midst of all of that, one of the most significant tasks that has been entrusted to the pastor is to declare God's word in its fullness. So I made a covenant with God long time ago. I will preach the uncompromising truth of God's word. Whether I'm liked or not, whether it's popular or not, whether it's received well or not, now my commitment before God is to share the whole counsel of his word. For when God's word is proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit... The church is energized and strengthened. The church is awakened to make an impact. The authoritative, inerrant word of God is powerful to change lives, 
the preaching of God's Word is one of the primary ways we are made mature in our faith. Well, what does he say here in verse 28, Paul? He says, He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. The word mature can also be translated perfect. The goal of preaching and teaching is to present everyone perfect in Christ. Now, you may wonder, I'm far from being perfect. Now, are you saying you're going to make us perfect through your preaching and teaching? All the best. I get that. You know, when I met the staff team of the church, one of them said, we are a crazy bunch. How are you going to lead us? What he doesn't know is, I'm crazy too, so we will get along fine. Now hear me, perfect doesn't mean flawless. For a Hebrew, something was perfect if it fulfilled its purpose. That was their definition of perfection. Something is perfect when it does what it's supposed to do. And preaching reminds us weekly of our purpose, our calling, why we exist, why God has set us apart. It is your primary calling as Christians to be ambassadors of Jesus and stewards of God's secret. The word calling literally means to be summoned. The king has called us. He has summoned each one of us to represent him to the world and declare this mystery, the mystery that has been hidden all through the ages but has now been disclosed through Jesus Christ. So your calling and my calling is the same. If you are a follower of Christ, all of your life has one unifying purpose to announce Jesus' salvation. It is the work that transcends all other vocation. This is the ultimate purpose against which we measure all things. And that is why a church cannot be inward focused. It is a contradiction. See, if our efforts are focused just on ourselves, then we miss the point. We are a community engaged in Christ's mission. We exist to be a beacon of light to those around us who don't know Jesus. Imagine if all of us start living that way in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in all the places where our life intersects. What an impact we will have in the city of London and beyond. So whether you're a, a lawyer, doctor, plumber, construction worker, teacher, whether you're a homemaker or a student or you're retired, you have one calling to announce the salvation of Jesus, to declare the secret that God himself wants to dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, this does not mean we all are going to be evangelists running around with gospel tracts in our hands. But it does mean we are prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within us. 
It means, in the words of John Dixon, we are to live lives worth questioning and then offer answers worth hearing. It means we surrender to God our gifts and unique abilities, talents and skills, our personality and passions, temperament and character, so God can use each one of us in unique ways to proclaim His salvation. And when we join hands together in community, we become lighthouses for Jesus. We shine forth His light in a dark world. And that is my heartbeat for the church that I pastor. I want us to be radical in our witness, lift up Jesus' name on high so He can draw all people to Himself. God has entrusted us with the secret. It's a sacred responsibility. Here's the second point that Paul emphasizes in the text. Suffering is inevitable in advancing God's mission. Suffering is inevitable in advancing God's mission. The thrust of this passage is Paul's labor for the church his sacrifices to advance the mission of Jesus. Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter to the Colossians. Tied to Paul's commission when he came to faith was the call to suffer. I love what Jesus said about Paul to Ananias back in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. See, suffering was part and parcel of Paul's apostolic calling. You can also glean from Paul's writings that suffering was not just unique to Paul, but it is part and parcel of faithful Christian living. So what do you see right here in verse 24? Paul says, now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now Paul could rejoice in his suffering because his suffering served an ultimate purpose the advancement of the mission of God. Now, Paul is not delighting in suffering per se. That would be an Eastern view of suffering, embracing suffering because of its inherent value. That makes no sense. By the way, the Western view of suffering is to avoid it at all costs. But the biblical view is engage wholeheartedly in God's work, and if suffering comes your way, that's okay. So Paul says here in the text, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, we don't understand what Paul is saying here. It may actually seem heretical. Isn't the atoning death of Jesus sufficient for our salvation? What can possibly be lacking in Christ's affliction? Did Jesus himself say on the cross, it is finished? Is the ransom that Jesus paid uh, not enough to reconcile us to God? Now listen to me. The death 
of Jesus Christ is the only ransom for our salvation, and it is all sufficient. Nobody can add to the value of the atonement. Jesus paid the ultimate price for our sins. Paul himself affirmed that truth in the book of Colossians and elsewhere in his writings. So what does Paul mean when he says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions? Now in the book, Desiring God, Pastor John Piper helps us to understand this text better. He states, Paul's sufferings complete Christ's affliction, not by adding anything to their worth, but by extending them to the people they were meant to save. It doesn't add anything to its worth, but serves to extend it to the people they were meant to save. Think about this. What is lacking in Christ's suffering is the knowledge that Jesus suffered. People are living self-centered lives, unaware of the unconditional love of a crucified Savior. And it takes some suffering on our part to extend this message of salvation to those around us. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 6, 17, For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So in his willingness to suffer for this mystery... Paul pointed people to the sufferings of Jesus. See, Jesus has not given us a kingdom that advances by the sword or military conquest or force. This is a kingdom that advances through the loving sacrifices of God's people. And I tell you, rarely would you see somebody come to faith in Jesus Christ without the suffering of God's people. Now think about the Family Day event coming up here at West Park. It is a labor of love. It's going to cost you. But that's what it takes to bring others to Jesus. So you sign up and you give your time and you serve sacrificially. I tell you there are many places in the world today where suffering is a day-to-day reality for Christians. And Christ's mission victoriously advances through pain and affliction. When my wife and I were in India, we were a young couple in our early 20s, pastoring a little church in the northwestern part of India, which is one of the least evangelized regions in the entire 10 by 40 window. It was difficult to find a place for rent because I was a pastor. When people found out I worked for a church, they would refuse to give us a house to stay. And we learned to be on our knees, even for our basic needs to be met. That which we take for granted in our North American culture. Now, churches in the Western world have an inadequate theology of suffering. And I'm convinced that's one of the reasons for its decline. Now, the Bible says... All who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. No exceptions. Does that apply to Christians in North America? Absolutely does. We may not have the same degree of physical persecution like other parts of the world, but the hostility is increasing day by day. We are called to live up to our Christian convictions through words and actions, no matter the hostility. 
Now look at Paul's labor as a servant of the gospel. He says in verse 29, that's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. That word struggle or content in most translations is actually a much stronger word in the original language. It's the root of the English word agony. The word originally was derived from an athletic race where the runner exerts all their energy in running this agonizing race. It does not matter what our geographical context is. We are called to labor in this manner when we are on God's mission with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So how do we find strength to live such a countercultural life? When our counterparts are obsessed with buying big motorboats and going on expensive vacations and building dream houses for themselves, how do we swim against the tide of our culture? Now, the answer to that question takes us back to the secret we are called to proclaim. Christ in me, the hope of glory. So in this passage, Paul emphasizes that Jesus Christ is our power. He enables us to live a countercultural life. While Paul did the toiling, Jesus supplied the required strength. There are many things impossible for us, but nothing is impossible for Jesus. See, left to ourselves, we all will pursue the Canadian dream and live a life of ease and comfort and waste our life on trivialities. But the Jesus who lives in us makes all the difference. He fills you with his love, his passion, his power, and his priorities. So it is no longer we who live, but Jesus Christ himself lives his life through us. As we come to an end, I'm going to ask you all to stand. The worship team is going to come and lead us in a, a closing song that is quite fitting. I want you to just close your eyes for a moment and prepare your heart. Remember what I said in the beginning? When our human heart is grabbed by a compelling vision, it is amazing to see the extent we are willing to sacrifice in order to accomplish the objective. And thankfully, this is not something we do in our own strength. Remember, Christ is in you. Christ is in you. And you can do all things through his power and strength that abides in us. So let's maintain a moment of silence and then we'll join with our team in singing the closing song.